Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. G'day everyone, my name's James O'Loughlin and welcome to this Sydney Ideas panel discussion, how our minds work. In the next hour we'll find out, well perhaps not everything, but a fair bit about how our minds work and even some things we can do to help them work a little bit better. Um, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and culture. The University of Sydney is on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and I pay my respects to Elders past and present and further acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country in which you're all on today where you live, work and share ideas, pay respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all First Nations people present today. How do our minds work? It's an enormous question. Our minds are wonderful things. Without them, we'd still be living in caves, I guess. They've created uh, coffee cups and books and jars and mobile phones and all sorts of things all came out of the wonders of our mind. How do they work? How can we monitor how our own mind is working? Get, if you like, an early warning system for when things aren't going as well as they can and what strategies can we use to monitor and improve, maintain too, our mental health. We've got lots of other wonderful speakers to, um, to fill much of the conversational space that we have too. So let me introduce them and first is Associate Professor Liz Scott, psychiatrist, Practicing Psychiatrist, Principal Research Fellow at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Liz has treated and worked with especially many young people with mental health issues and designed programs to help young people. Next is Professor Ian Hickey, Co-Director of the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre. Uh, Ian's been a leading voice in the national conversation about mental health ever since he was the first CEO of Beyond Blue many years ago. He has just co-authored a book about our mind and how it works and how we can get it to work better called Minding Your Mind. And full disclosure, the co-author is me. Look, I've got one too. Um, and Ian is also co-host of the popular, dare we say, mental health podcast, Minding Your Mind, uh, on which the book is based. And again, full disclosure, co-hosted by me. And also joined with is Shofi Dehan. She's been a family peer worker for Origin, where she provided emotional support and assistance to families and carers of young people experiencing mental health challenges, and also has lived experience of mental ill health, and will and will add that perspective as well. So when I was growing up, mental health wasn't even a thing. I'd, I'd never heard of it. I had no idea what it is. If, if someone had asked me what I thought was inside our mind, I would have said there was a big switch. And either you were fine and everything was going completely fine, or you went mad and you were insane and you went to an asylum and were never heard of again. Why did I think that? Like books and movies and stuff, mental health switch, sane or insane. Of course, now uh, we know that there's a spectrum more than a switch. And the first part of this discussion will be a little bit about how our mind works. And Ian and I have tried to address many of uh, those aspects in, in, in the book. And let's begin with one of those things. 
when I feel anxious, I used to think it was all about my thoughts. I'm having anxious thoughts. How can I stop those thoughts? What I didn't realize, what I ignored was the physical side, elevated heartbeat, adrenaline flooding my system. I didn't realize how much that was wearing me down and that if I could control, at least to a degree, the physical side, calm my body, would go a great uh, a great way towards alleviating my distress, even if I still had the thoughts. So if you learn to control the physicality, slow your breathing, your pulse rate, it, it really helps. Do we, and let me start with you, Liz, do we need to focus more on the physicality of mental health? Absolutely. I think it's a really good example, James. And I was thinking about it during your introduction when you were talking about how do we monitor our mental health. And I was thinking about kind of mental strength. You know, we monitor our physical fitness. You know, can we walk upstairs? Can we run for the bus without losing our breath? But we're not so good at doing that for our kind of mental health. And I was thinking about, you know, it's not only how you think, can you enjoy things? Can you look forward to things? But it's also what's your energy level? How are you sleeping? What's your stress response like? Do you, you know, do you get short of breath and hyperventilate and, you know, feel, you know, your heart rate racing if something fairly minor happens and it takes you a long time to calm down? So we need to have better strategies to actually monitor and manage our mental health, to be aware of it so that we can take the actions that we need to do when it looks like it's been not only perturbed, but when it doesn't cut back to where it is, when we have those ongoing symptoms, physiological symptoms that indicate that we've got more significant anxiety or that maybe we've become depressed. And one of the interesting things, you know, I've, I've learned from working with you is that often the solution to a mental health problem, a head problem, is not so much to do with the head, but is to do with everything below the neck, what we do. Yeah, so an interesting kind of aspect of this if you look at why Australians go to the doctor all the time, general practitioner, they go, I'm sick. And the doctor goes, no, you're anxious or depressed. They go, no, I'm sick. Actually, the sort of disconnect between what they're experiencing, low energy, poor sleep, low motivation, feeling sort of jet lag, feeling really unwell as being part of the whole thing. So we aren't just brains in a bottle. We aren't just that little thing cut off from the world. We're actually in a whole body that's physiologically responding to the external environment. And we have to get that whole thing right for mental health and well-being. As you said in the introduction, James, it isn't just from mental ill health to being unwell. It's actually being better, as Liz was saying, fitter, better mental health. You know, more energy, more motivation, brighter moods, more engagement. But that's a whole physiological response, not just a kind of I want to think to be that way. I just want to, you know, think that I am. I have to actually be it. Now, the being it, just what you're saying, is actually doing it. It's actually being those things. It is actually being active, being engaged, sleeping better, responding better. So that often people think the thought drives the action. Often the action drives the thought. Shofi, can you give your perspective working with many young people and families who have mental ill health and also from your own personal experiences about what you've learned about the physicality of mental health and how that can be a problem but also part of the solution? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, one of the things we see in people with, you know, say depression, for example, is there's often this aspect of going into like a hibernation mode. So that's kind of, you know, wanting to sleep more, wanting to be less active, wanting to withdraw, you know, those types of things. And one of the things in terms of the work that I've done with young people 
is you look at, you know, what we call behavioural activation. So that's that idea of getting out, getting moving, doing things, connecting with people. And it's that idea again that was just being spoken about a moment ago where it's, you know, that action first and then the thoughts and those types of things follow. I think from my own personal experience as well, there's, you know, elements for me where often it's the physiological aspects of my health that indicate to me that I need to be taking better care of myself or that I may be developing further symptoms. So for me... Could you give us an example of a specific... Absolutely. So um, for me, it's things like um, I tend to sleep longer. I find Mm -hmm. it when I wake up in the morning, I feel, you know, my phrase is I feel like I've been hit by a truck. Like I just feel worn out. And it's not like a psychological worn out. I can actually feel it through like all of my body. So my muscles are stiff. It's harder for me to move, be active, those types of things. Uh, Then there's things like, um, you know, experiencing agitation, which we often associate as a mental thing, can also be like a physical experience. So that sense of feeling like a lot of excess energy in your body and the need to move, that's the other end of the spectrum that some people experience. And that can feel like butterflies in your muscles or things like that. When things slow down for me physically and, and in that behavioral element, you know, the first thing I do is I start to try and do the opposite. So I start to try and get out. I start to try and get up early, which can be really challenging. Uh, But, you know, I would, for instance, structure activities in the morning because it forces me to have to get up. I've got a commitment. I've got to get out. And just changing those aspects to my routine and having those kind of behavioral changes start to, I guess, you know, strengthen my body and help me get out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so dealing with the physicality to help improve that a mental health issue. Alexis, have you got anything to, to add about the physicality of mental health? So one yeah, thing, James, just, we, I mean, we focus a lot on young people, obviously at the Brain and Mind Centre, but this is true throughout, you know, life. So this is true for people in middle age, people in later life, that, that that same thing about getting up and getting out and being connected is really important in terms of managing your mental health and as you get older, also obviously managing your physical health. Well, that leads us to social connection, which is a wonderful um, part of good mental health and something that we now know being socially connected, being part of groups is good for us, not just when we're doing it, but kind of like exercise has a bit of a lasting benefit. Uh, uh, Has social connection been perhaps an underappreciated and underutilised part of keeping good mental health and then as a solution to bad mental health, particularly now that we don't live in tribes and villages so much anymore, we live behind fences. So I think absolutely we've lost social connection as a community. When we look at the the incidence of or increase in mental health problems in young people and on a debate, is it the internet, you know, is it, you know, is it stress, what is it? certainly social connection plays a, a major role in that. We all live in smaller and smaller communities that are they're more disconnected. And COVID was a good example of how a community can get disconnected. It's also a good example of how communities can come together. So maintain, we are social animals. We're not polar bears. We're actually more like wolves. We know we, we do, th- and mon- you know, monkeys, we do thrive in social groups and we don't thrive on in isolation. So it's very hard when you are depressed or you're very anxious because people tend to either hibernate, as Shofi says, or they're so anxious that they avoid social interactions because they feel terrible and they feel that they'll be judged by people. So actually prescribing it is really important. And then looking at people's social network, 
and enabling their social network, families, friends, extended family, kinships, community groups, people to actually get involved. If there are things that they can do to help and support, not just say, why don't you go out and exercise, but actually help facilitate and support people to do that, create environments where that can happen. So I think we, under, we certainly underestimate and undervalue it. And as a health system, we don't prescribe it enough and facilitate it. So, um, Ian, you're, you're huge on social connection as being, well, lack of it being part of the problem and, and more of it being, being part of the solution. Hugely. Uh, the, the COVID experience, I mean, I think prior to COVID, people understood the importance of personal autonomy, control of your life to actually feel better. But the other central pillar of good mental health is social connection. I don't think people really appreciated it quite so much till COVID came along and said you can't have either. And people were forced to be more on their own. They were more disconnected from things they took for granted, relationships in the workplace, personal local coffee shop, local sporting club or local church or other community groups, all those things that are part of our rich lives, not just our own family, and the importance of that for really good mental health on an ongoing basis. Liz has alluded to the real problem. When you are unwell, when you are anxious, you sort of withdraw. When you're getting depressed, you don't really have the energy. And you actually withdraw from that social connection, which actually invigorates, which actually supports your mental health, which says to us, of course, we need to lean in more and assist those who may through mental health problems actually be withdrawing. On the harsh side of the coin, imagine if you had a choice of seeing me or Liz as your favourite therapist. But you come to me, see to me and say, you're tired. I go, go exercise and you'll feel better. Come and see to me and say, I'm more disconnected. I tend to say, you're going to have to get connected. You're going to have to go back to work. You have to go out to families. Do you actually really... The part of the vicious cycle of depression and anxiety, what happens, it's entirely understandable that people withdraw from connection, but it's the connection they need to be well and stay well. And I think the point you've made, James, in the rest of our lives, we should invest in it. How rich are your social connections? Because at some point, you're going to need them. Yeah, that, that's an intriguing point. One, one of yours I really like, that social connection is like insurance. You know, if you have kids and lots of friends and you've got a busy job, you might not have time for lots of social connection, dump your friends, focus on your family and building a career and paying off your mortgage. But if you do, it is certain that at some point in your life, you'll hit hard times. And if you've got an active friend group, then that's when the insurance pays out and you've got them to support you. If you have to build a friend group at the same time you're experiencing burnout or depression or anxiety, that's really hard. Um, Shofi, was social connection part of part of the solution when you had mental ill health and and I guess importantly for people when you didn't feel like it how did you make yourself do it knowing that it was kind of medicine so um for me like social connection has been really important um you know I structure into my day be I you know well or, or not so well at the time social interaction with people in my life part of what that does for me is it provides a routine uh, which, you know, helps stabilise my body clock. Um, in addition, it, you know, there's that idea of, you know, we live in relation to other people. Having relationships where you spend time with people, you get to, you know, be acknowledged as existing and, and have that reflected back to you. And I think with things like depression and anxiety and those types of things, that's really important. The other thing about social connection as well is it's important to have you know, social connection to be there when you're, say, not doing great with your mental health. But the other really big thing that it can do as well is 
often our family and friends and, and even colleagues are the first people to recognise that maybe we're not doing so well. And often they recognise that sometimes before we have. So it really helps in terms of having people that might actually understand, oh, wait, I'm not, not sure you're doing so great. I'm going to check in with you. It, it provides a system where people actually can kind of keep an eye out for you and make sure that you're doing okay. So one of the things that I have is I have key people in my life who I trust that if they come to me and they say, hey, Joe, I don't think you're doing a bit well or I think, you know, you're, you're saying like you're a bit withdrawn or things like that, I kind of trust their perception of things and that, that helps me kind of do things, I guess, and, and activate that. In terms of when I don't feel like socialising, it's small things. Like for me, my routine became getting up and going, having a coffee at the coffee shop. Now that seems like a really small thing to do. But that was social interaction for me. I'd have a chat to the barista or I'd have a mm. chat to the waiter. And even just having small social interaction on a regular basis, even if I didn't feel like catching up with a friend or things like that, that still had a really positive impact. So even just those types of social interactions are still really helpful. Yeah, yeah. Shofi mentioned the body clock and some of our audience went, oh, yeah, yeah, and others probably would have gone, the what? So, Liz, can you just give us a bit of a summation by perhaps the most uh, or sorry the least understood part of good mental health the body clock right that's actually it's actually in your brain so we call it a body clock but it is it is in fact in your brain but this this body clock then influences all the other organs so all the cells in your body actually have a clock and this is on my desk for a reason because we talk about the, your brain clock and circadian rhythms and sleep all the time. So the medical student who's with me today is completely bored of hearing about it. But it's so intrinsic to you know, good mental health, but also good physical health. So there's a lot of evidence now about your risk of you know, diabetes or cardiovascular disease and immune-related disorders. It's a recent study they came out that showed if you slept as you, as you age, if you sleep five hours or less, your chance of developing these other disorders like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, increases very significantly and that gets worse as you get older. So we ignore the fact that we have a clock, I think. We just, we really just take it for granted and we don't realize that that clock that we have in our head has to be reset every day and it's reset by light and activity. So the whole thing that Jofi were talking about and Alexis about getting up and getting out is really, is really, really important. And it's a fundamental part of our biology. If we don't sleep, we die. If we sleep too much, we can't function. So getting it right and getting the timing of it right, and it's not just sleeping at night, it's also being up and active during the day. And that's, that reflects our fundamental biology. And I know Ina has a lot to say about this. So if you want to... A... Yes, yes, I, I, I will. But limit yourself because we've got, Ian, lots of other things to talk about. But, but briefly, the idea that... It's just still so weird to me that if you're feeling depressed or anxious or out of whack, one of the first things to think is, is my day in sync with the sun? And if it isn't, that could be a big cause and a big part of the solution, Ian? I don't think people really realise. In fact, in medicine, we haven't really realised, which is why a Nobel Prize was given in this area just a few years ago. Not to one of my close friends who discovered this in actually mammals, but to the guys who discovered it in flies just how much, how much of our behaviour, how much of everything we do and our mood and the way we think works in a simple 24-hour pattern that needs to be in synchrony 
with actually the light cycle and dark cycle of the earth. And humans that have clocks that are closely tied have survived longer than those who didn't. But the clock changes during the year as well. It changes during seasons. Here's spring. If the sun came out here in spring in Sydney anymore, actually, you'd know that over the last few months, you've had a change in your sleep-wake cycle before we introduced daylight saving. And that has an effect on people. And people who have more sensitive moods are more affected by that. People put on weight. People do hibernate, as Zerofi uh, had pointed out earlier on, at certain kinds of periods. So there's stuff going on that people are not aware of, and they need to be in synchrony with that. And people with depression and anxiety turn out to have much more sensitive clocks that not only affects their mood, their cognition, their appetite, their weight gain, their metabolism, as Lewis pointed out, and the hormonal system. So do you even know what your own body clock is? Do you know what your own pattern is? Do you know how much that changes? And do you know how to regulate your own clock through light exposure, physical activity, et cetera, to keep it in synchrony? You know, all that rhythm, synchrony stuff, it does matter to staying healthy mentally as well as physically. Uh, Sophie, was the body clock part of when you had uh, poor mental health part of the problem and or part of the solution? Absolutely. And in, in both ways, you know, um, as Ian just said, there are some people that their body clock is more sensitive. Um, so they're more likely to be affected by changes in the light at certain times of the year, or if they stay up too late or don't get up at the same times in the mornings or things like that. A huge part of my recovery journey has been learning how to manage my body clock. So I try really hard to get up at the same time in the mornings. I structure my day so I have things on early in the mornings to get up. I try and go to the bed at the same time every night. Um, I try to exercise at similar times of the day. All of those types of things, you know, that social activity, again, that connection, all of those things help to strengthen that clock. And then for me, it's helped to stabilise my mood and help me to function better. It's also played a really significant role for me with energy levels as well, which can be impacted with things like depression and uh, getting up in the morning and going and exercising and being out in the light actually improves my energy levels throughout the day. And the biggest thing with this type of thing is really it's a lifestyle change. It's management and it really pays off if you do it. But it is something like, you know, we don't love to brush our teeth, but it's something we get into the habit of doing every day. And with these types of things in terms of helping to stabilise our body clock and, and have that mental health, it's, it's you know, it's ongoing management and, and lifestyle changes, really. Habits are really hard to make, but they're really powerful. I do 10 minutes of yoga every morning and I've been doing it for ages. And the first month was hell. And the first year wasn't very good. And to be honest, I still kind of hate it. Uh, but I know it's really good for me. And at the end of 10 minutes, I'm kind of ready to go. So... Once something becomes a habit, as you say, cleaning your teeth, you don't even think about not doing it and it just almost happens automatically and it's really good for you. Sorry, I interrupted someone. Was it you, Alexis? Yeah, Liz. So just on a practical level, in terms of your, in terms of your clock, which is entrained by light and activity, 20 minutes in the morning outside, 20 minutes at lunchtime, 20 minutes in the afternoon as the light starts to fade as a kind of minimum. As you say, Alexis, when people are feeling very flat or down, it's very hard to get them out of their room or you know out of their office but just 20 minutes 20 minutes 20 minutes you don't have to run you don't have to jump up and down just being outside and low level activity is a good place to start um we we want to get to practical tips of improving our mental health so what can go wrong with our brain section two of this discussion we could talk about anxiety we could talk about depression we could talk about each of them for an hour and a half i think we're just going to focus 
on burnout because it's been something that a lot of people have been interested in and talking about recently and, and experiencing that feeling that you used to really like this job and now every task feels like climbing a mountain and every interaction feels like something really unpleasant that you've got to brace yourself for. Ian, what is what is burnout and what's what's going on? Is it a precursor, for example, to depression or is it something else? It's certainly the topic of the age. Mm. Since that I'm exhausted by what I'm doing, I'm starting to lose interest in, I don't have the same motivation, I don't get the same pleasure out of those things. So it's a very interesting phenomenon because I think for some people it is a warning sign. A great example the other day of people talking about high-performance athletes you know, they have to perform at their top all the time. Well, actually, they do that by actually doing it and then having time out and then being reinvigorated to do it. They don't try and do it all the time. I think over the last little period, the COVID period, lots of people have been trying to do things all the time through a difficult period, which has been chronically stressful and difficult. And now they've kind of had it with that. They haven't been able to take the time in and out. So it is this exhaustion, this detachment, this difficulty, but I think you need, people need to kind of necessarily take stock. What does it actually say about me? Is it about a job that I really want to change? Is it about being stuck in situations that I really need to look at that have been chronically stressful? Or is it actually an earlier warning sign that maybe things have really got on top of me and I need to monitor my mental health and well-being a whole lot better? Liz, what, what have you got to say about burnout? And particularly, what does it mean? Like sometimes, doesn't it? It means... Actually, you've been in this job for 20 years and your brain really wants to change. Yeah, so I think burnout obviously means different things to different people. Some, you know, I think for health workers during COVID, burnout was literally burnout. They were work, working long hours with, you know, behind in very difficult conditions. And I think it was just incredibly stressful. I think for other people, it is the repetitive nature of their work and being in situations where they feel they don't have a lot of control but there are a lot of responsibility and expectations. I think for other people, it is just that getting to work when they have a lot of responsibilities outside of the workplace, particularly if they've got children or other family members that they're caring for, becomes exhausting and they just really can't manage everything. So I think for different people, it means different things. We, so we talk about burnout generically, but, it, but it's not. So I think looking, as Ian has said, looking at kind of what is it about your situation? What is it that you're experiencing try to understand what's driving it and then what is it that is going to help you thrive what are the things that you need to do and how can do you need to get some advice about that do you need to reflect do you need to take some time out to think about what you're doing how do you pace yourself better how do you make sure that you take breaks how do you vary what you do how do you get more support at home how do you take you know how do you delegate some of the things that you're doing what are the other things you do outside of work, like 10 minutes of yoga or like going for a walk at lunchtime or like planning, you know, something to, that you look forward to at the weekend or, or something in the kind of longer term future? What are the things that are going to help you thrive and survive in the workplace? I don't think there's a simple solution. I think it's a quite a, you know, it, a, there's a lot of individual variability. One thing is for sure that workplaces can take more responsibility for that. They can pay more attention to the well-being of their employees. They can put more systems in place, look at people who are working long hours, have got other family responsibilities and have more flexible workplaces with more support. You said there's no, uh, there's no one solution. I disagree, at least to an extent, less meetings. 
No. Less meetings is not going to make you feel worse, in my opinion. Uh, Sophie, any thoughts on burnout? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, burnout's something that I'm really familiar with and especially recently, you know, I'm, I'm working and I'm studying full-time and, and it's a lot to kind of manage. There's a few kind of key things for me, I guess, that, that keep me well. Um, the first is kind of recognising that even though sometimes we have the inclination to be working all the time and we need to be productive and we have deadlines and all of these types of things, sometimes being productive actually means taking a break. It actually means stopping. It actually means, like Liz said, you know, going for a walk in the sun or watching a TV show or just doing something that brings you enjoyment, that brings you pleasure. So being productive actually means resting. The other thing is, you know, that idea of self-care, which is talked about a lot and thrown around a lot. Um, but, you know, I've recognised the real importance of, you know, doing things that I love and things that bring me pleasure. Taking, you know, I structure in a morning a week of just me time and I'm ultimately far more productive because of it. The other thing I've kind of learnt around burnout is that one of the things that can help burnout is even when we're really, really busy, if we're doing something that we love, that brings us meaning, that brings us enjoyment, um, that brings us a sense of purpose, we're often able to cope with that burnout or, or with those work hours or those lots of commitments a lot better because we have that sense of, you know, um, you know, enjoyment and, mm. and purpose moving forward. So there's some of the things I kind of right. have implemented. Yeah. James, can I just jump in because one of the other aspects for older people like myself and yourself, not any of the other three on this particular things, is we live long lives and we actually respond to change and novelties. There's a tendency when you've been very well trained in a particular profession or a particular thing to stick at it and keep doing it and keep doing it. You're a standout role model, James, for having changed life trajectories a few times to do interesting things, to do different things, to take on new challenges. And I think you see, particularly in midlife, in other areas, people who tend to get stuck, I've just got to keep doing the same thing, even though, in fact, they need to do different. They need to look at different things, move into different phases of life. You know, as you move towards retirement, if that's when they were, don't retire, do something different. The change kind of aspects, there's some degrees of burnout, I think, is that people are stuck in very rut type things, when actually we have long lives and humans like to do new things and novel things and take on new challenges or experience other things. So there's a tendency, I think, for people to get stuck at times. In, in the responsibilities and the, and the trades they're in, if you like, and not necessarily experience a wide set of other issues. Do you see this a lot in professional workplaces? Funny you should say that, because as you were saying that, uh, an email notification came up on my screen that said the Department of Premier and Cabinet is hiring a, an advisor to the Premier. So that will be my next <laughs> uh, career. Now, um, I just want to get all of you to share two or three quick tips about what you can do to maintain your mental health when it's good and to improve it. To the things you've learned so far on your life's journey about what you can do to attain good mental health. I'll go first. I've got three. And, and one of the things is that I've learned from learning about mental health, there's no one size fits all. So my three might be totally different to your three. There's lots of strategies, but you've got to find the ones that work for you. My three are exercise. Healthy body, healthy, healthy mind, as someone said earlier. Be aware of the triggers for mental, you know, if you had an episode of poor mental health, what were the things that brought it on? How can we be aware and stay away from those things or at least be aware where they're coming? 
Uh, so be aware of triggers. And the third one, kind of similar, monitor your mental health. How am I today? Am I a seven? Yesterday I was an eight. Is this the start of a downward trend or am I going to be up at an eight again tomorrow? Good just to kind of keep that monitoring going. So you think I'm, I'm falling a bit and you can say to people, I'm feeling a bit bad and they can support you and you might be able to stop it before it goes into a pit. Um, what are yours, Shofi? So I think one of them is ask for help. Ask for support when you need it. And I think sometimes people with mental health challenges can feel like a burden, but you'll find that most people in your life are probably wanting to help and, and be there and, and be that seeing a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist or friends or family, asking for help, seeking out that support is really important. The other one would be for me, you know, recognising those early warning signs. So, you know, there are triggers and then there are also the idea of these are the changes in my body physically, these are the changes in my mind psychologically that I might be starting to head down a path where my mental health is deteriorating. So recognising that early and seeking help is a really big one. And then, you know, doing what you can. You know, when we're not feeling well with our mental health, you know, there is that, that kind of often propensity to withdraw. Even just doing things that you can do, it doesn't have to be everything, but just something to kind of keep moving, keep that momentum feel like you're moving forward with your life and it can be making a meal or it can be, you know, going for a walk. It can be anything. It can just be really small. So just keeping that momentum moving right. forward. Liz? Shofi, you, I think you've, you've stolen my, my main line. <laughs> Keep moving. So I think we're dealing with a lot of difficult family issues at the moment and the, the thing is just to keep moving. If you, if you stop and you get stuck and you start to ruminate and dwell on things, then you become paralyzed and you can't be, you know, effective for yourself or, or supporting others. So I think keep moving. Sleep and exercise is really important for me too, James. The other thing I think is around negative thinking. So don't be, you know, recognize your negative thinking. Don't be harsh to yourself. And also recognize that you need to be positive towards others around you. It makes a huge difference to people that you work with or you live with if you say positive things as opposed to negative things. So don't be negative towards yourself. Try and be positive to others around you. Right, and Ian. Sad to say for me, because not very good at it, but invest in relationships. Pick up from Jackie Troy, our Director of Indigenous Research here at uh, Sydney University. You've got to invest in the mob. You can't really be that well yourself if you're surrounded by people who you really care about being unwell. You know, they've got a kind of the collective mental health kind of bit here as well. And that, that's the interactions that Liz was talking about, the consequences between each other. And in a sense, in our modern lives, particularly our modern psychology, which is so preoccupied with how am I, are you okay? Actually, we need to be more preoccupied with are we okay, the kind of collective self of the mm. particular thing. And if that's better, you know, it lifts all of us in that particular issue. And that's not just, it's not just a family thing or the person you're in an intimate relationship with. It's the wider world. There's a lot of mention along the way about coffee shops and things you run into, what are seen as the incidental but not inconsequential interactions we have with people be part of a community, be part of a place to know where you are and have that sense that that's okay, even if the rest of the world has gone in very bad directions in recent times, that the bits around us are themselves. And as social animals, we do a lot better. There are some other issues. I mean, if I don't sleep okay, apparently I'm quite difficult to live with. You have to ask Liz about that. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, that's underpinned by being physically active, the body clock bit. Guess which days I spend with Elizabeth and guess which days I spend on my own? Um, sometimes, James, that doing 10 minutes of something requires somebody else to insist that you do that 10 minutes of right. something, even if let's, you are the beneficiary. Let's move on to questions and we'll, uh, we'll get short 
sharp, pithy answers as best we can to as many of them as we can. Uh, the first one is from Zach Zhu. What are the best ways to recognize negative mentality and how to tackle it? Uh, Liz, you mentioned that, but I know, uh, Shofi, you've got some thoughts on that, negative self-talk. Absolutely. So like negative self-talk is something that's really common for a lot of people. Um, you know, when we start to recognize it, you know, a key thing to do is just kind of accept that it's a thought. You know, you don't need to engage with it. You don't need to form judgments around it. Just let it sit with you and often it will pass. So that's that idea of trying to avoid giving thoughts power. Um, the other thing as well is, you know, it's, it's often important when we have mood changes as well to recognize are the negative thoughts about something that's happened or has my mood shifted and I'm now experiencing negative thoughts? And when we recognize that difference, we can start to tell ourselves as well that, you know, my mood shifted, so I'm starting to experience some negative thoughts as a byproduct of that. But my mood, you know, and we know this, moods continue to shift. My mood will, you know, rectify itself again. Um, and it won't have that same effect. And again, this kind of negative self-talk will pass. So there's some of the things I would suggest. Great. This is another one. How do we deal, how do we keep our mind out of anxiety if we don't find that positive social connection or a prompt relationship, especially if we've just immigrated to a new country, for example, Australia? Uh, Liz? Very good. Very good question for those people mm. that find themselves quite isolated. Um, it is what are the things that interest you? What do you enjoy? What are you, what are you interested in? You know, the internet provides a lot of social connection where you can find people who have similar interests or similar ideas. Think about what are the things that you can do, you know, where outside in the community, like going, like finding, going and finding your local coffee shop or finding a local yoga class, going to the markets, being out there, going to the dog park. You know, even if you don't have a dog, you can go and pat other people's dogs. You know, finding things in your local community that give you a sense of connection and also kind of using the internet for, for the good things about the internet, which are about staying in connection with people that you know from overseas, but also finding people with common interests or similar interests in your environment. But also if you're naturally socially anxious, one of the most terrifying, some of the most terrifying times in my life have been going into a new class. You know, when I was a bit younger and my mum would make me go and join scouts. And within 15 minutes, it was always unreal. But the 15 minutes beforehand was some of the worst in my life. So make if you've got an interest, if you like, you know, uh, gaming or, or football or whatever, making yourself do something hard and join something that'll create a social activity and knowing that it'll... Uh, get better. This is from Ahmed. My mood changes frequently and is really sensitive to what I experience in my professional and personal life. How do I keep a consistent work productivity with these mood changes? Uh, Ian. Yeah, so what's happened here is recognising a vulnerability. Some of us have more unstable moods than others. Some of us are more reactive to stuff. So the first thing is to recognise that about yourself. And then what are the mood regulating strategies? What is it that makes your mood more likely to do that? Like I was mentioning earlier, in my own case, being more sleep deprived or being in certain areas. What can you do that helps you to develop a more stable, if you like, or less responsive mood to the situation? And finding that out. One of the things I say about all of this sort of stuff, we talk in very general terms, but the key thing for your own mind, your own brain is to find out what works for you. So the first step has been achieved. I mean, it's recognize the vulnerability subject to easy moodiness <laughs> the next thing is okay do the sort of things we've been talking about help to regulate that to reduce that in particular ways 
so that when you find yourself challenged at work, you find yourself in those issues, you don't get so angry so easily. You don't get so hurt so easily. You don't react in that particular way as easily. And I think this is where seeking further advice about the behavioural and cognitive strategies to regulate your mood becomes really helpful. I also think I just wanted to add there very quickly, when your mood is low and you have a lot of work to do and you need to be productive, sometimes it helps to recognise I may not be in a good headspace to do certain tasks, but maybe there are some other easier ones, repetitive ones, things like that, and you kind of switch the order of what you need to get done so that you've still being productive but you're giving yourself that space to kind of experience like your mood shifting in a positive direction again the other thing that can really help is using lists because when our mood's really low and we're not feeling motivated and things like that it helps to sometimes just tick something off and sometimes just put something on your list that's so small that you know you can tick it off like you know read an email you know just something to have that sense of progress you know in terms of being productive with work when your mood's low as well those types of things help Make a list. Um, this is a, so how do you answer what is the point of life when hopes and aspirations are broken? I think I should go to one of the psychiatrists on this, Liz. Look, I think, you know, when people do get into very dark spaces where they lose their sense of pleasure or enjoyment in life, I think if you find yourself in a place like that where you've lost hope or you've you know, you're starting to think about, you know, what's the meaning of life and is it worthwhile, then that's the, that's the time when you should do, as Sophia suggest, suggested, put up your hand and ask for help. And that means talking to somebody, talking to a friend, talking to a family member. If you can't do that, go see, you know, go see a healthcare professional, but absolutely making sure that it's a time that you get, that you get help and then get some assistance to actually find out why you're thinking in that way, what are the things that can help you, I saw you putting your hand up, Ian. I was in favour of Jovi. Put your hand up. Put your <laughs> hand up. Okay. Right. There are times in life not to say it is all hopeless. It can feel that way. It's exactly the time where we are not good and we've never been good at putting up our hand. Over 50% of Australians who have mental health problems in any one year still do not get any help. Wow. And that's partly about our great reluctance when we're in those dark spaces just described, particularly men, put up their hand and go need help and other people to reach in to those people and go we're here to help and i think as well you know if you had diabetes and you weren't well you'd get help if you had a really really bad infection you would go to the doctor you would get help if you broke a leg you would get help you know mental health is no different and we know that there is that strong physiological aspect and and these things are health conditions you know so there's there's no shame in getting help for those things like you would for any type of other physical illness. This is where the lived experience bit really matters. I'm going to refer to another great friend of mine here, Neil Cole, and his writings about being depressed and suicidal. And understanding you'll get through that, but you can lose the plot of that on any particular day and it will pass. And, you know, actually people say, just as the person who's written that, it's said as if it's a permanent state. It's not a permanent state, but it may be a very life-threatening state to be in today. So knowing for people who've been through these experiences how to get to tomorrow through help and that will pass to actually solve the problem and not lose more Australians as we have every year when they're in that state. This question goes back to social connection. Uh, how is simply talking about your mental health with another person helpful? What happens in the brain to make it a benefit? And I kind of get that question because you've got a broken leg. Talking about it isn't going to help it. If you've got the illness, depression, how's just talking going to fix it, Liz? 
uh, because we tend to internalize things. So we tend to keep things in our head. And you probably know from your own experience that the more things, if you keep things in your head, you tend to lose perspective on them. They tend to seem worse, more insurmountable. And you can become paralyzed by that, have difficulty with problem solving or seeing your way out of it. So actually just talking to somebody else about it actually helps you process it, helps you see it in perspective. Sometimes the other person can actually give their own perspective and say, yeah, I felt like that before. And it's a terrible, you know, and these are the things that I can do or, you know, I can help you with that. So actually articulating what is going on inside your head helps you process it, helps you be able to see it in a different light sometimes and helps you then start the process of actually getting help to solve it or to problem solve. There are real physiological changes to that. It isn't just talk. You're going to brain cells. They respond to the voice of others. They respond to the hug of others. Your own cortisol, your own adrenaline, other things actually change in response to social interaction. So it isn't talk in theory. It's talk and it's interaction that changes the internal physiology of us. And, and we should say, I mean, you two are the experts or you four, the evidence is very strong, isn't it, that therapy, talking to someone, is very helpful for people with, with mental ill health. We're pretty much out of time, but just I know Ian and Liz, I think, would both endorse this. There's nothing wrong if you go to a therapist or a counsellor saying, how does this work? tell me how it works and if at the end of one hour you just get the feeling they're not the right person for you to talk to that's totally cool there's hundreds of others out there and and so sometimes it can be a bit of a journey to find the right person but don't write off therapy just because the first person wasn't the right connect with you um thank you so much to all our panelists i'm sure everyone's applauding uh out there in in internet land thank you so much and bye and these sydney ideas events are regular and excellent farewell thanks for listening to the sydney ideas podcast for more links resources or the transcript head to the sydney ideas website or subscribe to sydney ideas using your favorite podcast app Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.